We are continuing our series, Sent on Purpose. We started it last week, and last week we talked about Moses and his near face-to-face encounter with God through the burning bush. And as we've been walking through this series, Sent on Purpose, last week was all about how we make up excuses often for not doing our call, for not walking in our call. And we talked about how Moses made so many different excuses before he finally stepped into it. And so uh, with that, we learned not to make excuses, that there's not an excuse that we can make that God hasn't already figured out, that he hasn't already planned for. Today, uh, we're going to be looking at something else, something else that comes up whenever you start walking your call, and it's a story of another great man of faith in the Old Testament, and his name is Joshua. So Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them, the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to, to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all of the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Because I would lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you are. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and for this moment to come before you and hear your word. As we walk through this other thing that we face when we're called, Lord, I would just pray that you would open up our hearts to receive this message that we too would be strong and courageous before anything that we face, before any obstacle that we might come across. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a story that I heard several years ago of a man who bought a vacation home to rent it out. Now, I don't know if this story is actually true. Um, I don't even remember all of the details, so just think of this as when a movie says it's inspired by. That means all the details aren't correct, but... The basis of the story is true. They just added some more things. So that's what I'm going to do. This story is that I'm about to tell you is inspired by a story that I heard several years ago. But this guy, uh, he bought a vacation home, and this was uh, just his family vacation home. They would go there often, and he decided to follow this trend of what other people around him were doing, which is renting out his vacation home to people. And so he, he started preparing it. He put in some new appliances. He put in some new furniture, made it look really good. And when it got to the time that he was about to post it online for people to rent this vacation home, he thought about 
how as a child, his family was never able to go simply because they didn't have the money. And out of his generosity and out of his remembering what it was like to be in a family of poverty, he decided that he was going to list this vacation home free to rent. So like if you, uh, nowadays it's called Airbnb or Verbo, but when you'd go to, when you go online to an Airbnb, which Chloe and I, we've, we've done it, we, you go there and it tells you how, many, uh, how much it's going to cost per night, just like a hotel would, and you get the entire house to yourself unless you request that someone be with you. But um, you can get the entire house to yourself for this amount per night. Well, when, whenever you would come across this guy's quote-unquote Airbnb, it wasn't called then, called that then, but when you would come across it, it would say $0 a night. And you could stay for as long as you wanted. It sounds really good. And he listed it for no charge. Within a few days, the next several months had already been booked up. And bookings and reservations continued to just pour in. Which, if you're like me, and you can, you can spare some money to use on some other fun things that you're not spending on a hotel or a vacation home or a condo, then absolutely, right? This would be the vacation home for you. But as he's preparing for this first guest to arrive... Like he's, he's doing everything to make sure that this guest has the absolute best experience. And last minute, this guest calls and cancels their reservation. So he, he thinks, you know, maybe it was just an, a family emergency. Maybe something came up and they couldn't actually come here. They didn't give him a reason why, but he tried to find someone to fill up that week so that someone would be staying there and no one could take it that short of notice. So then he, he decided to put all of his efforts into uh, preparing for this next guest, the second week of guests that were going to be coming. And, and just like the first, they canceled the reservations a couple days before. So kind of confused about why this is happening, he, he tries to find someone that would stay and he can't, so then he waits for the third one and reservation after reservation was canceled at the last minute or just a few days in advance. And he was mind blown. He was like, why is this happening? It doesn't seem like people would give up a free opportunity. Now what happened was he rarely got anyone to stay in this vacation home. He couldn't decide if it was because people thought it was too good to be true, but if they thought it was too good to be true, why would they even reserve it in the first place? And he did something that he ended up not regretting. He, he looked at the market, looked at his vacation home, and found what the fair market value for a reservation would be for that particular home. And instead of listing it for free, he listed it for a fair market value price. And very similarly to the first one, reservations started pouring in and in. But the difference that happened between free and what cost them something was that no one canceled the reservations, or very few actually did. So where he was doing it for free, you could come and live and, and stay in this home for as long as you want to for free, and just enjoy the rest of your vacation, they would cancel. But when he... Uh, made it a fair market value, and people were investing money into this, they continued to stay. It comes down to this. 
we hold tightly to the things that we value highly and very loosely to the things that we don't value that much. Right? We also work extremely hard for the things that we value very highly, but very little for the things that we don't value. Right? Think about it. If you value having a brand new vehicle in your driveway, you'll work really, really hard to make sure that you can either uh, put a good down payment on it and, and cover it for the monthly expense, or you know, if you're more wealthy than the rest of us, you, you might save up your money so that eventually you can buy that brand new vehicle that you always wanted. You work really hard to make it happen. If you don't value having a brand new vehicle, then you're fine with buying used. Right? If you value a home, right, you'll pour money into it. You'll work hard to keep that home. If you don't value your home, you'll let it go and you won't make the necessary repairs. You won't make sure that it stays standing. Right? If you don't value something like that one thing that's sitting in your box at home, in a closet, downstairs, in the attic, you have no idea where it's at, what it is, what, what you even bought, why it's still in your home, right? those things that you don't value that much, what do you do with it? You don't work hard for it. Right? I don't value a, a pen and a piece of paper, so I, I don't buy a pen. Like it, I'm not going to work extremely hard for a pen and a piece of paper because I don't value it that much. I can easily access it. So when a pen or a piece of paper gets tossed aside... I'm not freaking out. I'm not like, wait, where did that pin go? Right? Even if it's my favorite pin, I'm not going to be like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Chloe's going to kill me. I lost my favorite pin. Like, we're not, you don't do that because you don't value it. And our calling with God is very similar in that. When we highly value our calling from God, we work very hard for it. When we don't value our calling from God, we toss it away. We don't think about it much. We don't work very hard for it. And we fall into this motion of religious Christianity where we come to church, we sing the songs, we leave. We come to church, we sing the songs, we leave. We come to church, we sing the songs, we leave. If you don't value your calling, you're not going to work very hard for it. So as part of this series is to hopefully instill in you that you do have a calling, you do have a purpose, God is sending you, and you need to value it. The more value that you put on your calling from God, the more likely you are going to hold on to it, to keep it, to run with it. The thing about your calling, though, is that it's going to cost you. You see, it's, it's free to get because God gives us a purpose. He gives us a calling for free. But when we start walking into it, that's when it starts to cost us. It's like when you are reserving an Airbnb or a, a vacation home or a hotel, it's free, for the most part, free to look at them online. It, it's you know, it's free to look at those, to, to look at all the pictures, to dream about what it would be like to be on vacation on those homes, to, to go through and sort through your options. But once you hit that book button, that's when it starts to cost you. 
And the same thing with your calling. It's free to know what your calling is. It's free to know that you have a calling, that you have some options in your life. But once you start walking in it, that's when it starts to cost you. And I'm here to tell you that if your calling is from God, then it's, the cost is going to be greater than what you think that you can actually handle. Because if God's in it, then it's not relying on your strength, it's relying on his strength. If it's a truly God-given calling, then it feels impossible, but you'll watch how God makes it possible. Now, with that, it also feels really risky. How many of you like to take risks? No one? No one likes to take risks? Wouldn't you love it if you could just walk through life, not take any risk, and get all of the rewards Sometimes we treat our calling like this, like, like we've been called by God and, and it's free for us. There's no risk involved. And as long as we feel like we have a calling, then we're going to get all the rewards. That's not necessarily true. Because we have been given this free gift, but it is going to cost us to start living it, to start walking in it. And the risk that comes with it is that we don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes we don't even know what it's going to cost us. Right? It starts costing us things that we never thought it would actually cost us. And that's why I believe that so many people stop walking in their calling because they're the risk of what they might lose, what they want to hold on to, but they might lose because they know it's not godly, that they will hold on to those things and say, I'll follow you all the way around what I want to hold on to, but once you start touching this, I'm done. If you look at, at the book of Job, Job demonstrated this exceptionally well. Because he, he loved God so much that when he lost literally everything except for his wife, everything except for his wife, he was still faithful to God. Why? Because the risk that he might lose everything wasn't as much as how great the reward was going to be just simply following the God of the universe. In any type of transaction, there's a potential risk and a potential reward. All right? The greater the risk, this is what I heard all my life in, in finance, the greater the risk, likely the greater the reward. Right? The more that you're willing to risk, the more that it will reward you in the long run. Right? So think about venturing to start a new business. Right? There's a lot of risk involved. Because you don't know if people are actually going to like your product. You don't know if people are actually going to buy into your mission and vision. You don't know that this is actually going to be successful. You might have some ideas. You might have some input. But you really don't know because there's a lot of risk involved. But if you can pull it off, there is a lot of reward that can follow that. But within risk and reward, there's fear and uncertainty. Because we can't see the future but God can. And it's what I like to call the great what-ifs. This is where the fear and uncertainty starts to settle in. The, the great what-ifs. What if no one buys my product? What if a storm comes today and destroys everything? What if I fail? What if I'm not good enough? What if no one likes me? What if, what if I'm not strong enough? What if I can't actually sustain it? What if I don't have the time to invest in it like I think that I will? What if my life just gets turned completely upside down? What if this isn't what God wants? 
right? We all have those doubts, fears, and uncertainties, especially with our calling. And this fear and uncertainty, I can, I can tell you from experience, from watching other people, can destroy a God-given purpose before it even takes off. Destroys a God-given purpose in a person's life before it even takes off. And I think that's why so many people in my generation, and I'm throwing my generation under the bus because we're horrible at it, walking in our call. Right? That's why I'm an anomaly standing up here preaching at 24 is because our, my generation is so bad at it. We don't live out our purpose and calling because we're afraid to fail. We're afraid of what it will cost us. We're afraid and uncertain of where God is going to take us. And because of that fear and uncertainty, we've, we just don't even walk in it. We don't even believe in it. Because we don't believe in ourselves, we don't believe in God. And so, what do we do? Well, I'm really glad that you asked that. Because if you didn't, if you aren't asking that question, I'm just going to answer it anyways. Let's look at Joshua. If you remember, when the Israelites are going uh, out of Exodus, Moses is leading them out. There's this guy named Joshua that's mentioned just for a brief moment. And it says, Moses is aid. Right? So he was an assistant to Moses. And that's really all that we know about Joshua for a little bit up until we get to this moment. And there might be other stories in between, but really the first time that, that my eyes, at least, see Joshua for who he is, is when the Israelites are on the border of the promised land. They're standing on the border of the promised land, and Moses sends out 12 spies to go into the land to, to scope it out, really probably to make sure that this was the actual land but then also to see what the enemy looked like. What are they going to have to face when they walk through this? And as they're walking through, Joshua and Caleb were uh, two of the 12 that are going through. And as they're walking through, they see the land flowing with milk and honey, but they also see all of the, the giant people that they're going to have to face, the, the very strong militaries that they're going to have to conquer. And when they walk back, Joshua and Caleb were the only two that said, wait, we can go and take this land. God says it's ours, so he's telling the truth. It's ours. We can just go ahead and take it. But the other 10, they, if you remember the story, they're like, wait, no, this is impossible. right? We're going to get crushed by those people. We, we look like grasshoppers under their feet. They're going to crush us. We don't have a chance. Maybe this isn't the land that God was actually talking about. And because Moses believed them, because Moses said, well, you know, maybe we just wait for a little bit they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And God told them that none, no one in that generation was going to be able to walk into the promised land, including Moses and Aaron both. But he did say Joshua and Caleb would be able to enter. And in that story, Joshua, this assistant to Moses, demonstrated some great faith in God, but he didn't have any testing of his leadership skills. He had, Moses had no idea if Joshua could actually lead, and Joshua may not have even known that he had leadership skills within him. After all, he was just an assistant, not a leader. But God was very specific when he told Moses, Joshua is going to be the next you. He's going to be the one that leads the people whenever you're gone. And he tells him this early in the book of Deuteronomy. 
So a lot of the book of Deuteronomy, you can kind of walk through and you'll see that Moses with Joshua there is helping this transition, helping develop who Joshua was as a leader. But God was very specific in what he wanted Joshua to hear in the moments leading up to him actually taking this position. Before Joshua knew that he would be Moses' successor, Moses stands before all of the Israelites and he says these words in Deuteronomy 31, 6 through 7, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua. So after Moses tells all of the people of Israel, including Joshua, who's sitting in the front row, he says, be strong and courageous. You don't have to be afraid. Then he says, Joshua, come up here. And he turns to Joshua and look at what he says. Be strong and courageous. For you must go with this people into the land the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them. And you must divide it among them as an inheritance. But then moments after this great meeting of Moses telling the people, be strong and courageous, turning to Joshua, affirming that Joshua is going to be the one leading these people and saying to Joshua face to face, be strong and courageous. Then God encounters Joshua and gives this command to Joshua, son of Nun. In Deuteronomy 31, 23, be strong and courageous. For you will bring the Israelites into the land I promised them on oath, and I myself will be with you. So already, before Joshua is even installed as the leader of the Israelites, he's already heard these words, be strong and courageous, don't be afraid, I'm going to be with you three times. And when I read Moses saying this, it's almost like Moses saying, learn from my mistakes. I wasn't strong I wasn't courageous when I believed the ten instead of the two. I wasn't strong and courageous. I was afraid. I I didn't believe that God was with us, that he would take care of the battles. And so because of that, I was banished from ever entering into the promised land and forced all of the Israelites to walk through the wilderness for 40 years. Seeing the promised land, walking around, but never being able to enter. So he's telling them, be strong and courageous as you walk into this call. But then after Moses dies, Joshua hears this phrase, be strong and courageous four more times. Joshua 1 through 6, or 1, 6 through 7. He says, be strong and courageous. In verse 7, be strong and courageous. In verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And then later in verse 18, he hears this from the people. And the people tell him, whoever rebels against your word does not obey. Whatever you may command will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. I think upon hearing that, you should know that your calling is going to come with a lot of risk. It's going to come with a lot of battles. But if Joshua were here today, he'd say, be strong and courageous. He heard it seven times, which is like the number of perfection in the Bible. He heard it the perfect amount of times. Be strong and courageous. Now, there might still be some fear and anxiety that settles in, but when that settles in, continue to be strong and courageous. So let's break it down just a little bit. Be strong. That's the first command. Be strong. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. See, being strong in the Lord means you aren't relying on your own strength. Right? There's still some things that you have to do, but what you're truly relying on is God's strength, not your own. Because, again, if it's a God-given calling, then it's too much for you, but God wants to use you to fulfill that calling, and he will. So he will supply all of the strength. Right after Paul writes this in Ephesians to uh, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, he lays out the, the armor of God, telling us to put on this armor of God as we're going into this war. And, and if you think that your calling's not a war, then you're wrong. You're mistaken. Your calling will be a war. But he tells us, uh, Paul tells us, take up the armor of God. And I want to say this, and um, I, when I was running through this message and kind of making notes, um, I, I said it so much better last night, so it, it's not going to come out as good, uh, which is natural for me. But the armor of God is not a list of things for you to do. It's a list of things that you will become because of the grace of God. I'll say it again. It's not a list of things for you to do it's a list of things that you'll become through the grace of God, right? So let me demonstrate this for just a quick moment. We got the belt of truth. The belt in the Roman um, army with their um, armory, they would, it would hold all of the armor together, right? It was like the foundation of all of their armor that they wore. And so your foundation in your life will be the truth of God, the truth of God and his word, the breastplate of righteousness. What does the breastplate protect? Your heart and your lungs, Right, your heart will be transformed by Jesus and he will make you righteous. Your stained, sin-stained heart will become righteous because Christ has made you righteous. He will provide that righteousness for you. And so whatever you do and what the heart that drives those actions, it will all be based on the righteousness of Christ. So that every breath that you breathe is his wonderful name. The feet fitted with readiness for the gospel of peace. Your feet are protected from the terrain and from any thorns that might come into your life that will slow you down, any thorns that might hurt you or, or harm you as you're going and advancing the gospel by the way that you walk through your life, right? We're not just uh, Christians by, by our voices and Christians by what we say and how we say things, but we're Christians by the way that we walk. These are the feet fitted with readiness for the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, means that you will become so faithful to God that anything the world and the enemy throws at you, it's going to be deflected away from you. It's not going to matter. You're still going to feel it. You're still going to hear it. You're still going to feel probably the heat from the fiery arrows. But when your world seems like it's falling apart as you walk in your calling and your purpose, you know that God has something so much better for you. And that's the faith is that all things... All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The helmet of salvation signifies this headship of Christ. It signifies that your mind is focused on the things of God and the salvation that he gave you. So any type of fear and anxious thoughts that, uh, that come in there when the enemy tries to play these mind games and he attacks your identity, he attacks your capability, he attacks your fears, he attacks your anxieties, the helmet of salvation reminds you, no, you're none of those things, you're a child of God. You've been called according to the purpose. 
You, you, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. That you're so valuable that he literally sent his only son to die for you, die in place of you, and rise again so that you could be resurrected with him into a new life. And then the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, contrary to my childhood belief that we could wave around the Bible at the enemy as the sword of the spirit, I think it's actually describing the tongue. Because if you look throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture, it talks about the tongue as a two-edged sword. That it can tear down, but it can also build up. So this tongue is the sword of the Spirit. So the words that we speak should be the Word of God. The words that we speak should be Spirit-led to where the Holy Spirit is constantly speaking through us. We're not using our own words but that Christ and the Holy Spirit is speaking through us. This is how you stay strong. Every day you sit closer and closer and closer to God. And the closer you get to God, the more that he's going to reveal how unworthy you are, but he's also going to remind you how valued and loved you are. He also says, be courageous. In John 16, 33, it doesn't say be courageous, but it says take heart. I've told you these things so that you might have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. This is Jesus speaking. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Listen, if we truly believe that Jesus has overcome the world, that he's overcome and defeated death, sin, and the grave, we should act like it. Right? We, we don't have to be afraid of being bold in the way that we present ourselves because he's already overcome it. Right? I'm tired, and I'm tired of this for myself, and I'm tired of seeing it in other Christians acting like, uh, you know, it's so easy to look at the world and think that we're losing, but I'm tired of Christians acting like we're losing. Right? So many times I see Christians just ducking their heads or, or slipping into church in, afraid, in fear that they might be caught going into church. Right In high school, I was really bad about this. I would study the Bible on my phone, and then when someone would look over my shoulder, I'd go to social media real quick. It's those type of things, acting like we're losing this battle. We're not. It may look like that, but the reality is, is that we've already won. So why wouldn't we be courageous? Right? If you're on a team... And it seems like you're going to be the one that loses. But the reality is that you know that you're going to win, right? You've already seen, not just visualizing it, not just thinking it, but maybe it's your team on TV and you recorded it and you know that you're going to win, but it seems like you're about to lose. Would you not be so bold to tell some people that don't know anything about this game to say, we're going to win that game? Be like, no way. Like, no way that you're going to win. No, we're going to win. I'll bet money on it. Right? Don't do that because we're General Baptist. But I'd bet money on it. I'd tell you anything that you could do, anything that you can do. I'm telling you, we're going to win this. We're going to win this game. Right? You would be so courageous, and it would seem reckless because of how courageous you are. And it's because we've already won. If Jesus has overcome sin in the grave, that means He's overcome your sin. He's overcome sin. He's overcome the sin of the world. He's overcome every single temptation that has ever existed and will ever exist. So why do we pretend like we are 
dying? Why do we pretend that we are being destroyed? We've already won. So be strong and be courageous and do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. There's this thing uh, that I, I think Rick Warren said it. I don't know how valid it is. I tried to look it up and I couldn't get the same results as Rick Warren. So he must have a different program than me or something. But he said one time that fear not, do not be afraid or any type of phrase similar to that, meaning don't be afraid, don't fear, shows up in the Bible 365 times. And it's this great sentiment that every single day of our life, every single year, we can look up a verse and read that we don't have to be afraid today, right? Because we're strong, we're courageous, we know that God has already won, that, that we are on the winning side. But one of these times that it says, do not be afraid, I think this is the real reason why we shouldn't be afraid. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. See, we don't have to be afraid because if Jesus really has overcome all of our sin, whenever he was sent, whenever he lived, whenever he died, and whenever he rose again, that meant that we aren't under those chains anymore. We aren't under that anymore. We aren't under the law of death. Instead, we can live fearless. We don't have to be chained by fear. We can live fearless because we know God is there. He, he's already overcome everything. Listen, we, we always talk about this in Christian circles, how God is bigger than your problems. But we know that sometimes your problems fill with so much bigger than God. And when our problems feel bigger than God, then we try to take control for ourselves. But the reality is, is that I've heard this illustration before, and I don't have a picture on screen. It's just coming to my head right now. I'm just kind of taking cues from the Holy Spirit. But if you're sitting in your car and you have like one of those little tree uh, air fresheners, I know those like aren't really much of a thing anymore, but they used to be. So I know that you guys know what I'm talking about because I know what I'm talking about. So the, the little tree air fresheners that, that hang from your rearview mirror. Right, they, you know, they, they move around and, and they're supposed to make it smell better. There's always the black one. I think that was like new car smell. But um, if you look through that and you look at a car down the road, that tree will look so much bigger than that car. But if that tree was actually bigger than that car, then how could it ever fit in your car? You see, if you take that tree off of your rear mirror and walk it over to that car in the distance, you'll see that that tree is so much smaller than that car. What matters is how close you are to God. The closer you are to God, the smaller your problems will be. The smaller that your problems will seem because you know that God is bigger, but if you're positioning yourself closer to your problems than you are to God, then your problems are going to seem so much bigger. So you don't have to be afraid because God is bigger, he's better, he's stronger, and he is with you. Just as he says, I will be with you. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. I think this is how he demonstrates to us that he's with us today as post-New Testament church. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When Jesus left, 
after he rose again with the disciples for 40 days, when he left and he ascended into heaven, he didn't say, all right, you guys are equipped, you're ready to go, go do it by yourself. No, he said, I'm still going to be with you. It's not going to be physical, um, incarnate Jesus, but it will be the Holy Spirit. And so that's who we have with us all the time. And the Holy Spirit, if you don't know much about him, know this. He gives you full access to Christ and God. Anywhere you are, at any moment in time, you can, you can look to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I, I need you to talk to me. I, I need to be with you. Or, or simply, I want to give you some praise for this moment. As you're walking through your call, I want you to know that phrase. Let it speak life over your entire calling. Be strong because he is strong. Be courageous because he's already won. Don't be afraid because he's already overcome it. He's already bigger than it. He's already stronger than it. So you don't have to be afraid because he will be with you wherever you go. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's never going to purposely distance himself away from you. He will always be with you. And I'm telling you, if the God of the universe loves me so much that he's willing to walk with me wherever I go, I, I want to serve that God. I want to work hard for my calling. So as you start walking through your calling, as you start trying to find what your calling is, what your purpose is, know this. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, for he will be with you wherever you go.